0: where anybody can ask any questions. So to start, the first thing to remember is that we need to understand as we get into this first teaching tonight, which is titled The Bible Versus Jesus, is number one, we're not doing any of these studies over the next five weeks for the intention of being rebellious. In fact, I would like to suggest if you hear something come out of my mouth that sounds like it's coming from a voice or an attitude of rebellion, please throw it out. Please throw it out. Because everything we do needs to be from a heart of restoration. And what I'm believing we're going to do is we're working towards and we're striving for the restoration of how he wants us to see him. So part of thank you, Amber. Part of what we're going to do as we go through this is, number one, this is not for the intention of just being rebellious. I'm not just trying to turn over tables in the temple just because we can. I'm also not wanting to just get people head knowledge. The goal of all of these teachings is you. the reason you go in – I'm in right now in the middle of remodeling our, our, our guest bathroom at our house – And before you can remodel it to make it look the way you want it to look, you've got to tear some things down. The hardest part of knowing is unknowing. Knowing is easy. Unknowing is hard. And so what we're starting with is unknowing and undoing so we can have his knowing and his doing. Okay? Um, And so it's – but it's all from the vein of restoration. Number two. The, um, If any of you know me, I have been a Bible-obsessed person as long as I can remember. I remember being a little kid in grade school and taking my Bible with me to school. I remember asking my second-grade teacher if I could do my book report on the Bible rather than Shiloh. I remember being in um, um, Sunday school and actually tearing out large chunks of my Bible to give to everybody else in the class because I was taught that not only was I to read the Bible, but I was to share the Bible with my friends. So at the age of, of five or six years old uh, with Frosty, who is my Sunday school teacher, uh, who's long since to be with the Lord. I actually don't even know his real name. That's just what we call uh, That I I remember doing that. I I. The hardest thing, I'm giving you some background, the hardest thing for me when the Lord changed everything about our lives was to spend time in intercession. The reason was I loved the Bible so much, every time he would speak, I would want to get up and go study. Three hours in the Bible was nothing. Three hours in prayer for me took work. I'm just sharing. I'm just being honest. not saying I didn't do it. I'm just telling you, My inclination has always been, I've just had a thing about the Bible. It's just been my life. So I'm not saying anything that we're going to say tonight from the stance of a low view of Scripture. I'm saying everything I'm going to say tonight because if we don't start here, everything else that we talk about is going to be challenging. And the reason we started before we started this series on Wrecking Religion, the reason we started with the society and talked about the change that happens when you come into the society, the kingdom is because we're not of this world. And the world that we're not of is that world, that word world has nothing to do with planet Earth. It's the world It's the word system. We're not of this system. And so that's going to require us the two systems that Jesus regularly battled against. were the system of the world and the system of the church. And so tonight, as we go through this, I want to address specifically the Bible versus Jesus. Have you ever had something where you God asked you to do something? And immediately before you even get two feet forward, you've got all the the. well-intended Bible stewards who are flipping through the pages to show you that what you're doing is not scriptural. And they pluck some verse that more than likely you know is probably out of context, but they pluck some verse about how this isn't supposed to happen and that's supposed to happen. To give you an example, right now a hot topic inside of the uh, American church, the Western church, is can women... Be pastors? Can women oversee men? This is still a big deal in our culture, you know, being evolved and all. And do you realize that the Pauline passage that everybody quotes in Timothy that says that a woman is not to be a pastor over a man. In the same context, it also says that a woman is not supposed to wear gold, wear pearls or nice clothing. That and I. This is pro, this. Hopefully, is shocking to you that um, in my study, I found that about seventy percent of the churches in our area, in their bylaws, state that a woman cannot be over a man in any facet, including giving prophetic words. So, what happens is somebody flips to a passage. And they pull something out like that uh, completely out of context and and don't look at what the Bible says and don't recognize that the time Paul was writing to the Ephesian church, the Ephesian church was actually predominantly in the area of that time. There was a temple of Diana. Diana was a goddess that all of the leaders of the temple of Diana were priestesses. That's not a word uh, were were female and they would wear specific illicit clothing because the way they funded the church and they believed that it was a worship an act of worship that the 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 priests actually prostituted themselves to the worshipers and that was how they paid for the church and they considered it a religious act so they would wear they would wear Pearls and gold and nice clothing because that was a way to solicit that kind of thing. And so what Paul was saying is be very careful because in this specific context, people aren't going to know what's going on. But you see the problem. We've got this thing that we really, really have in our American culture, and it's called biblicism. Biblicism. So let's start, if you will, uh, with Mark chapter 9. We're just going to read this passage, and then I've got a whole bunch of notes. And I'm probably going to read most of the teaching tonight just because I spent around 40 hours or so just on this message studying. And I decided to type a lot of it just because I want to be very articulate to the best of my ability with what I share. Uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you that there, must, uh, there will be some that stand here which shall not taste death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six j- days, Jesus takes with him Peter and James and John and leads them into the high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on the earth can make them white. And it appeared with them Elijah and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter, the idea man of the group, says, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he would what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. <clears throat> this account happens near the middle of Jesus' ministry on earth, and this story is absolutely incredible in its picturesque detail. Of this transition whereby Jesus is transfigured before the very eyes of the disciples. And while we do not have the time to go into the meaning of the transfiguration itself, excuse me, can you imagine what it might have been for the disciples to behold this? Not only the majestic shining of Jesus, but then you have these two anachronistic appearances. Anachronistic just means out of time. You have these two pillars of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. Moses would have died around 14 centuries earlier. You've got these, uh, 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 Elijah was nine centuries earlier. You've got these guys who out of time appear and hold great weight. These were pillars in the Jewish faith. So can you imagine for the disciples what it would have meant to see these two men showing up on the scene? Jesus Clothing is whiter. In fact, in some translations, it says whiter than you could bleach them. So his clothing showed white. What an incredible thing to see. But what we must understand in this moment is it's laden with symbol. Moses and Elijah are not just towering figures in the Old Testament. They're representative figures, not just in the Old Testament, but of the Old Testament. Elijah is the quintessential prophet. Moses is the lawgiver. He represents the law itself. So to say that Moses and Elijah were there would literally be like saying the law and the prophets were represented. Or the Old Testament, which is made up of the law and the prophets. So Moses... Gave the law, but what was the purpose of the law? The law was designed to form Israel as God's people into a just and worshiping society. This is really vital for us to understand. The intention of the law was given through Moses was always to transform this chosen people of God into a just and worship, uh, worshiping society. What you find is the even... When you break this down to from the Torah to the Decalogue, which is the Ten Commandments, they're broken into two groups. The first four are designed to form Israel into a worshiping people. You have, shall have no other gods before me or no idols. Keep the holy day holy and the sacred day sacred. Those four things were framed within the Ten Commandments to make the children of God, the children of Israel who were the people of God, A worshiping people. Furthermore, the other six were intended to form them into a just society. This was to govern how they treated their neighbor. Honor your parents. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness and don't covet. So the whole intention of the law itself was to create this, this society of people where the line gets moved forward into being worshipful and being just. And interestingly enough, it was to deal with the framework of how they loved God, worshiped, and how they loved people, just society. What did Jesus say all the law and the prophets hang upon? Love the Lord God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself of the law. The prophets came along later, frankly, because the people much of the time failed to live up to the high calling of being a just and worshiping society. In fact, the reason for the prophets was because the people fell short of the law. The reason for the prophets was to remind people that there was a, a, a high order for them to be a just and worshiping society. In fact, quite frankly, when you look back to the prophets, you really study and find that they denounce primarily two things, idolatry and injustice. Every prophetic book, every prophet of the Old Testament, if you boil down their message, it's two things, idolatry or wrong worship of God and injustice or wrong treatment of people. they had been given a law and invited them into a different society. So the law and the prophets have this design that the people of God can be a worshiping, and just society. And from the beginning, Jesus shows up and says, don't think that I am come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Okay. In other words, I have Come to do what the law and prophets were trying to achieve but could never fully accomplish. That's what he's saying. I didn't come to destroy what they did. I came to fulfill it because they couldn't accomplish this on their own. And if you have any argument to that, just look at how it worked out. Look at the 400-year drought between Malachi and Jesus. Look at the, the, the whole idea of what you find Israel always struggling with. And so Jesus says in the beginning that he intended to bring the kingdom of God that was always intended to be here all along anyway. He intended to bring the kingdom of God that God had intended to institute through Israel, but Israel was unable to do it on their own. So here on Mount Tabor, Moses and Elijah come to bear their final witness and to hand this project off to the one who will fulfill it. That is the message in the symbol of these catalysts on the mountain. That brings us to Peter, the father of the church, the rock upon which the church is built. That statement by Christ was prophetic in more ways than one. Do you realize, number one, that Jesus only ever used the word church once? And it was when he spoke over Peter that upon this rock I will build my church. So here's Peter, representative of the church. He's the foundation that the church was going to be built upon. And in this moment, Peter sees this thing. Peter was a Jew of Jews. I mean, this guy was full bore, nationalistic Jew. He got it. He knew what the Bible said. He knew who Moses was. He knew who Elijah was. And what Peter comes up with in this moment, if he, I don't really blame him, is we got to do something. We got to do something. And isn't it interesting because his presumption in many ways is no different than the church. He is the father of the church, and he is in this story prophetic of exactly how the church has been. Presumptuous, impetuous, yet pure in motive. Trying to do what's right. See, that's the challenge you have with guys like Peter. I mean, the same guy that, that, like Peter, that would rebuke the Lord when he said that he was going to give his life is the same guy that was when Jesus said, who do you say I am? He said, you're the Christ. See, there was something in Peter, even in his presumption and in his impetuousness, but there was a hunger to do right. This was the man that was crucified upside down because he said he was unworthy to be crucified in the same manner. So in this moment, Peter is representative of the church. In fact, if you study this time period, you actually find that Jesus gave Peter the title of father of the church. Immediately preceding this right before they go up the mountain and have this experience is when Jesus tells Peter upon this rock, Petrus, you, I'm going to build my church. Essentially, he looks at Peter and says, rock on, Peter. Just breaking up the. So it was at this moment that Peter misunderstands the meaning of Moses and Elijah being there. And he comes up with an idea, frankly, a horrible one. But he comes up with an idea nonetheless. Peter comes up with the idea in that he's overwhelmed and impressed that these pillars of his faith are here. He is the official idea man of the 12 disciples. None of the other disciples would ever rebuke the Lord. Peter, though, you know, he can do it. That more than likely he was the oldest of the 12 disciples is what a lot of people teach historically. Um, And so he was kind of the voice. You know, he would say these things. So he says to Jesus, We think we need to build three monuments. We've got Moses here. Who's the law? We've got Elijah here, which is the prophets. And we've got you, Jesus. You're pretty cool, too. And so we need to build these three monuments. People are going to travel from far and wide to see them. And, and we, we read this and we think, well, they're just tabernacles or churches. No, these were literally worshiping monuments is what he intended to commemorate what had happened. And he says, we need to build these things. These people will come. People will travel. We could charge admission. We could fund the end time harvest. I mean, if a If a dollar is for a soul, we can have a whole lot of souls with all the admission prices. We're going to we can put the creation museum out of business, Jesus. So what you find is that Jesus looks at Peter in the midst of this. And before Jesus has the chance to reply mid sentence, while Peter is speaking, God interrupts him. In a loud, booming voice, God says, while Peter is speaking, equalizing Moses, Elijah, and Jesus as all being equal. God, the Father, out of heaven, interrupts him. The heavens open up, and God speaks in a loud, booming voice. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. At this moment... The disciples that are there are absolutely petrified to the degree that Peter short circuits and faints. Falls on the ground, not that I can blame him. If I was in mid-speech telling Jesus about, hey, I've got this great idea. We could start a business. You need to trademark this. And God interrupts me in a loud, booming voice. All the while, these patriarchs are here. Jesus is glowing. I, I would probably short circuit too. Short and go to ground, right? I mean, that's just what you do. And so Jesus walks up to Peter and touches him. In fact, it says this in Matthew's gospel, touches him and declares, don't be afraid or let your fear be gone. Brings him back to life. This is the sun of righteousness rising. And much like the stars and the moon at the dawn, the law and the prophets fade into the background as the sun rises to welcome this new day. Because God could not say everything that God has to say in the form of a book. God said it in the form of a human life, and that life was Jesus. He is the word that was in the beginning and came and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, and as many as received him, received power to step into their beloved identity. Is what God had to say. So before we get into, I read recently uh, last week, before we get into John 1, um, I read this really interesting article um, by a very prominent pastor in our country, and he was writing in um, to CNN, it was an op ed, about he was defending. The death penalty Um, and what he was using to defend the death penalty is he was drawing from what Moses had to say in the Old Testament about an eye for an eye. And he was drawing from the situation that if if there's somebody that is um, uh, steals, you're to, you know, either stone them or cut various things off. Um, if, If there's somebody that murders that you're to murder. And so here's this pastor who is utilizing Moses from the Old Testament to justify capital punishment. Now, let me be clear. Because for whatever reason, as soon as I start quoting the Bible, people call me a liberal. Let me be clear. I do understand that capital punishment is a political hot button. I really don't care what you believe politically about capital punishment. But when I tell you Jesus said, rather than an eye for an eye, If someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. What I'm telling you is not that you can't believe in capital punishment. What I'm telling you is don't use the Bible and weaponize it to get what you want done when Jesus came to show us a better way. John chapter one, verse 17 in speaking to the pharisees John chapter 1 verse 17 says for the law was given by Moses but the but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ no man has seen God at any time the only begotten son which is in the bosom of the father hath declared him now here's an interesting thing okay John is talking here now John Before you get all propheticized, what you just said isn't biblical. What about Abraham? He saw God under the trees at Mamre. What about Jacob? He saw God at the top of the ladder at Bethel. Moses saw God and his face shined. What about the 70 elders who ate and drank with God? What about Isaiah? He saw the Lord high and lifted up. Or Ezekiel that walked with God along the river. So, John, hang on just a second before you get too far here, because it sounds like, John, you've got a low view of Scripture. Because John says nobody's seen God, but I can give at least 10 instances where people saw God. And John would say, yes, I understand this. amazing how you always win the debates in your head i don't know i've never lost an argument in here it is pretty impressive batting a thousand but what john is getting at is that no vision of god we have comes close to the clarity of his nature and character we find in the life of jesus jesus is what god Bible is the word of God, but only in penultimate sense. It is Jesus who is the ultimate word of God. As Brian Zond puts it, everything, every revelation of God you find in Scripture must bow its knee to the revelation of God that came in the flesh named Jesus. So everything else we find in the Bible, every other glimpse of who God is, every other thing about who's going to heaven and who's going to hell and what judgment gets to come and who's who's wrong and who's right and what's supposed to happen in the Middle East and all that other junk. If you don't view it through the lens of what God had to say in Jesus, you're not viewing it through the proper lens. This is established in our country what's called what I call a weaponized gospel. Evangelism by terrorism. Where you can pull any passage out of the Bible, throw it at people until you scare them enough and prove that it's right. And I'm not just talking about Old Testament, I gave you the instance earlier with Paul in 1st Timothy, but frequently throughout the Old Testament, you find this. And and if your question is, um, are are you saying that the Bible isn't inerrant? I'm I'm I would tell you you're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. The question has to be. What is the Bible trying to show us about who God is? Because just to be clear, the Bible was written by men who didn't sit down and have some holy trance. You do realize that Paul didn't sit at his holy scripture desk. And, and like, you know, third rock from the sun where they got a message from the big talking head. And all of a sudden, he just starts spouting out what God has to say. Furthermore, you do also understand that it was about four hundred Well, depending on what if you're talking Old Testament or New Testament, hundreds of years, almost 500 years before it was agreed upon what could be allowed in anyway. And they threw out more books of the Bible than they allowed in in the first place. And guess who it was that made that decision? Man. Now, I know I'm stepping read close to toes now. But what I'm telling you is not that the Bible is unimportant. I'm telling you that it's more beautiful than you possibly could have imagined. Because when we view the Bible in a flat text where it's some answer book and an encyclopedia for life, how many times have you heard phrases like the Bible is your manual for life of how life is to work? We're putting a pressure and a weight on the Bible it was never designed to bear. Because do you realize the number one reason that people don't accept Christ? It's not because they have an issue with Jesus. Most people, most people, I'm not going to say everybody, but most people are good with Jesus. weaponized gospel that they've seen in the rest of us that they have an issue with. And ultimately, do you know the number one objection I've had when trying to talk to people about the Bible? It's how can you even believe the Bible when it contradicts itself so frequently? How can you be somebody who preaches the Bible when in the Old Testament, essentially the way that we, the way that the world looks at the Bible, see how many, just raise your hands, this is, let's just be interactive here how many of you have learned about the bible first when you were a little kid okay most of us let's just say start hearing about the bible really young do you realize that you are the exception in the world not the rule Within that concept, there is a script that we've been given our whole life about how this is all supposed to work and about what the Bible says. And if we're honest with ourselves, the rest of the world or those that are not believers look at the Bible and essentially they look at Jesus and they're like, man, this guy was awesome. He was healing people. He was helping people. He was caring for people. But everything left of that is Game of Thrones. Than that is people doing what they still try to do, which is find things that allow them to be able to get their agenda done in the first place. Because it's the Bible that caused. Well, I want to back up. It's the Bible that people drew from and allowed them to have license for World War II. It's the Bible that people used to license slavery. It's the Bible that people use to fight equality today. I'm not saying that the Bible isn't all inspired. I'm not saying it's not all God. But what I'm saying is Jesus came to show us a better way. And when you walk through the rest of the Bible and you walk through it without the escort of the word of God that came in the flesh named Jesus, you're missing the point. And so what you find in this John passage is that he right out of the gate is saying, well, nobody has seen God. And the rest of us who are Biblicists would say, well, John, that's not scriptural. You better get in line, John, that's not scriptural. We'd start flipping. What John is getting at is that no vision of God you find anywhere else comes close to showing us the clear depiction of the nature and character of God we find. Anything you believe about the character of God, you can't find in the character of Jesus. You should question. It's just that simple. Jesus is what God had to say. John five thirty nine and forty. This is in the uh, uh, this is in the Passion translation. prayed for me earlier so it's i I think she actually i think she prayed for me but actually it's the clock that it affected it just slowed down it's like that early israel with the sun sanding still uh john chapter 5 verse 39 you are busy analyzing the scriptures frantically pouring over them in hopes of gaining eternal life everything you read in them points to me yet you still refuse to come to me so i can give you the eternal life you're We don't like to hear this, but the Bible does not predate the church. The church actually predates the Bible by a couple centuries. In fact, it is through the church and the humans within it that we receive this incredible and inspired book full of ancient literature, stories, poems, and letters. And in it, we see humanity's journey toward God. But we must understand that the Sanhedrin used the Bible to justify killing God. Do you realize that specifically in the Old Testament, it says that any man who hangs from a tree is forever cursed? So do you realize if you were a Biblicist... gave his life on the cross, you had scriptural reason for not accepting him as Lord. So technically speaking, the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish leaders, the rest of the people who knew what the Old Testament, what the Torah said, had scriptural backing for saying Jesus couldn't have been the Messiah because there's no way the Messiah could be cursed. And he hung on a tree. I like to say it this way. So what do you think uh, the Torah or a Bible-believing, what they had at the time, the Bible-believing Jew would have said about the Messiah? Should they respond as we do? The Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Or do we need to understand that the Bible is not a flat text where every verse holds equal authority? The disciples didn't read it as a flat text. The early church didn't read it as a flat text. The Bible is like topography. There are hills and valleys. And before anyone picks up stones to throw at me for saying something quite as horrible and heretical as this, I'd simply like to ask this question. Do you believe that Paul's defense of slavery in the New Testament epistles is on the same plane as John's depiction of God? got some problems. Isaiah chapter 25 verse 6 through 8. I'd like to read one of these what I'm going to what I'm calling high texts. I love these. These are these are the verses that clearly shine through what God is actually about and who he is. Isaiah 25 6 through 8. And in this mountain will Jehovah of hosts make upon all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wine on the lees of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. He will destroy in this mountain the face of the veil, which veileth all peoples and the covering that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death in victory and the Lord Jehovah will wipe away the tears from all of the faces and the reproach of this people. He will take away from all of the earth for the Lord Jehovah has spoken this. Do you see how many alls are in that? All the people, all nations, all people. That is a clear picture of who God is. He sets the rest of the context actually says that he sets a banquet feast and he invites. It describes as the heathen, the foreigner and nations that were ungodly. He invites them to the feast. Look at this, and we can say that this is on par with the other verses where God instructs David or Saul to wipe out a heathen nation and to destroy every man, woman, and child. Or we can recognize there are hills and valleys. And much like topography, you have to understand that when you have a clear picture in something of who God is, I'm not saying you cherry pick, because as soon as you say that, that's what everybody says. Oh, you're just... Choosing and picking what scriptures you wanted. Well, technically speaking, we would argue that Jesus did that because Jesus was in the uh, during the forty days of fasting and temptation. And what was it that the devil came at him with? Scripture hath God said. Hath God said? Don't didn't the Bible say Jesus, if you take yourself up to a high mountain and throw yourself off, that nothing's going to happen to you. The angels are going to pick you up. You're not even going to cut your foot. And when Jesus looks at him and says. Don't be presumptuous and don't tempt God. Now, for those of us who've been around a while, what that would be accused at in today's language is picking and choosing scriptures. Do you feel that this passage that we just read in Isaiah 25 is on the same plane? As the book of Deuteronomy passages that sanction the slavery of women taken in war or 1 Samuel 15, where Samuel tells Saul that the Lord wants him to wipe out the Amalekites entirely and specifically says to kill any infant children. If you remember, if you remember, Saul doesn't follow through with this correctly, and this is part of what actually cost him his kingdom. We have to understand there's a better way to read this Bible. There is a better way. This approach is not only dangerous, but it has sanctioned some of the worst atrocities in our history. Do you realize that both of the Old Testament figures that appeared also had major significance to the disciples because they had quoted them to Jesus after being sent out in ministry? You remember, Moses and Elijah both appeared. Both of these individuals in Old Testament passage were quoted by the disciples to Jesus. Jesus sends out the disciples, and when they return, they ask Jesus if they can call down fire from heaven and consume those heathens that attacked them. Do you realize what Old Testament story with Elijah they're drawing from? Ahab sends his armies to collect Elijah and to bring him before his presence. Elijah calls down fire from heaven two different times. The third time, finally, the poor guy, whoever he sends, because he keeps sending 50 men with the general. I don't know who drew the short straw by the third time. They're like, please don't send me. But he begs Elijah not to destroy him. That's the passage the disciples use and quote scripture to Jesus that says, can't we call down fire from heaven and consume them? And Jesus says, don't you know I'm here to give life and not destroy it? instance they bring and this was regular um actually i, I was going to give you a, a, a teaching with all the times that the, that jesus dealt with the um religious leaders in israel about the scriptures and all the times that he overrode the bible but we just don't have time because there's that many but one of my favorites is is um in the book of john where jesus is standing there he's been teaching they take the woman caught in the act of adultery and throw it at jesus feet And they quote scripture to him that says, because she was caught in the act of adultery, Moses says, the Bible says, Jesus, we can kill her by stoning her. Jesus says, what, whoever doesn't have any sin, throw the first stone. So do you realize there's this context Around this, there's this context where they would say things to Jesus, and Jesus would look at them and say, This is not how it's supposed to be. But if you would like to use the Bible to support violence, retribution, and revenge, you can find those verses. Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, but to show us a better way. It's very simple. There is a big difference between what is in the Bible and what the Bible means. Jesus would regularly encounter this when playing Bible Jeopardy with the Pharisees. I'm sure they had just returned from their latest victory at the Bible quiz championships whenever they encountered Jesus and came to him and began to quiz him on whether it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath. Spoiler alert, it wasn't. they quoted the scripture to Jesus to tell him why what he and his disciples were doing was unscriptural. I hope you understand the implication of that. I hope you understand the weight that that would hold in our current Americanized biblicist culture that looks at it as a flat text and says, this is is okay because it's biblical. People still draw, and I'm not even talking about radical verses. I'm not talking about stuff that says you, you can, you know, God wants to kill all the gays. I'm not saying it says that either. I'm just saying, I'm not saying radical, crazy stuff. I'm saying that as soon as there's something in the Bible, people just flip to it and do this. I was reading a story that's really interesting about a Bible school. A uh, pastor that, that I read some of his books actually went to speak at this Bible school, and he was sharing some of these stories about how Jesus came to show us a better way. A very, very well-intended mother was there that day visiting her son, and she sets out on her mission to not stop until he's not allowed to ever speak again because he had a low view of Scripture. He was picking and choosing. She didn't stop until the Bible school was actually shut down. God had given her a holy calling to make sure that nobody else was messing with her Bible because she was raised in the same surroundings most of us were, where the Trinity was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. This is where people get into the slippery slope argument. If there's anything that frustrates me, When it comes to some of the things we're going to be talking about, it's the slippery slope argument. Well, if you start saying that, then the whole thing just falls apart. You want to see the whole thing fall apart? Try to take the Old Testament literally and try to say that that's exactly who God was. And then try to say that Jesus is God and try to say that Jesus is God in the New Testament. And then try to say that God doesn't change. You want to watch the whole thing crumble? There it is. And here's the thing. This is deep in us. Five hundred years ago, there was a divorce. The divorce that happened five hundred years ago was between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. And Catholic mom, there's my timer. Catholic. And all dad, Protestant dad got was the Bible. And dad hung on to that like it was life itself. And we tried to do everything we could to hold on to that because that was all we had. And so we would argue on its behalf and we would prop it up and we would say that it was able to do things it was never designed to do. And because of that, Protestant dad then was able to take that Bible and go on the Holy Crusades. Protestant dad was able to take that Bible and justify slavery in our country. Protestant dad was able to take that Bible and say that things were acceptable that were never intended to be acceptable. Because of this great divorce that happened. And much like in children with divorce, guess what? Just like you would tell the kids it's not their fault, it's not your fault. It's not my fault. But we're still children of a broken home. And so the reality of it is Catholics and Protestants separated when that was literally you study it. We walked away with nothing but the Bible. It was me and my holy King James. And you want to see somebody get fired up. You question how they read the Bible. With how they worship, you can mess with where they sit in church, but you touch their King James Bible, and you got a fight on your hands. And it has done more damage in the world, in the way that the world looks at the church and looks at God, than anything else I can put my finger on. Scripture-loving Christians use the Bible to explain why they couldn't abolish slavery. Do you realize that they actually look and they estimate that eighty percent of people of, excuse me, eighty percent of evangelistic Christians in the North in the North didn't believe it was scripturally right to abolish slavery, because both the old and the New Testament justification of slavery I'm not even talking about the south I'm talking about god-fearing christians because when we do that when we make it into an answer book we cause it to bear a weight it was never intended to I would suggest to you today that the cleverest way to hide from Jesus is like this. Don't bother me right now, Jesus. I know what you say in the Sermon on the Mount. I know what it says about turning the other cheek, but I'd rather be back here at an eye for an eye. I know what you say about love my enemy, but I'd rather be back here just saying I'm okay with kind of loving my neighbor but not my enemy. I know what you say about vengeance is mine, says the Lord, but I, I, you know, I, I kind of like that, that God that David talks about where God goes out and destroys all my enemies. I like that God. He's a, he's a good God. He's on my side. Those people have really been picking on me, and God's going to let them have it. He's going to shame them in the face of everybody. I like that God. Really, don't bother me right now, Jesus. That's what we've done it, we've nationalized it, and we've allowed it to then, as we've missionarized it, or became missionaries and went out evangelistically, we now see this throughout the world. It has created shame culture, because then we have these views of the Bible where, what about all the things in there that say, I'm just a dirty, rotten piece of Nothing. with a few thoughts about how the early church fathers viewed the Bible. The early church fathers viewed the Bible as a story of humanity's growth and maturation toward God. They viewed this as an incredible library of progressive stories, poems and letters and songs about humanity's search for God. They never saw the Bible as a flat text with every passage carrying the same weight. When we approach the Bible this way, we put a strain on it that's impossible to bear. At that point, in a literalist, biblicist argument, we often find that it crumbles then against a weight it was never intended to bear. Example, what we have to understand is even in the Ten Commandments or even in the law of Moses, even in the stuff in the Old Testament, it was always God speaking to humanity to try to move us forward. Do you realize how radical it was in the Ten Commandments when God told Moses, thou shalt not kill? That was a radical step forward. If that was in today's language, we'd call Moses a progressive liberal, maybe even a snowflake. At that time, they had such a low value for life. These people were sacrificed. The only thing that at that moment really set the people of Israel apart, if you look at the way everybody else worshipped their gods to how we worshipped our God, was sacrifice of children. They regularly sacrificed their children to appease their gods. Human life had no value. So for God to start with, thou shalt not kill, to us doesn't seem like a big deal. But that's because we've moved forward. God was always moving us forward. And so the Bible is a progressive book. And so regularly it's moving us forward and further and further and further and further. And he would say things like when if you in the spoils of war passage, which in my opinion is one of the most grotesque and disgusting passages in the entire Bible about how you deal with a woman that you find when you have sacked her village and killed her husband. And the Bible talks about what you're to do in that circumstance. And it's disgusting to see. It's disgusting to see women treated as property. But let me be clear to you. The reason it's disgusting now is because now we see it clearer than they saw it then. But even at that point, what God told them to do was a radical step forward. He actually told them, allow the woman time to grieve. He actually told them, make her your wife. He actually told them, do not sell her as property, which at that time was radical. And so rather than sit back and wonder, why, was, why didn't God just stop it all? I, I don't know why God didn't just stop it all. But I do see that he was always dealing with broken humanity and trying to move us forward into a clearer character of who he is. That's how the early apostles read the Bible. This was a radical gospel. Whenever we look at these steps that are made, whenever Jesus says that that it's not an eye for an eye and it's not a tooth for a tooth and you're not to stone somebody who does something wrong. We have to understand we can no longer allow our culture and our system to poach from us who God is and we can no longer allow people to say, you know what, if you don't believe in the Trumpocalypse, if you don't believe in drain in the swamp then you're not a God-fearing Christian. We can no longer allow it to be, if you don't believe this, you can't, you're a heretic, you're this, you're this, you're this, because the Bible has been co-opted, I'm sorry to tell you, by a culture that is power-hungry at the core, and it will use that to attack the poor, to attack the needy, and pull scriptures like, if you don't work, you don't eat. You know how many times I've heard that scripture quoted to people who are on welfare? You know what I say? I say what Jesus said, that true religion is caring for those who can't care for themselves. And while I'm not by any means suggesting that somebody shouldn't work, before we allow somebody to weaponize the Bible to attack somebody who's hurting, why don't we look at what Jesus said about things? happened is people have picked and chosen, picked and chosen picked and chosen, Choosing's not really uh, we just choosing Jesus picked and choosing a few things to consider we cannot possibly suggest that the Leviticus directive to not wear garments made of two different materials, it says that that you're not allowed to wear clothing materials carries the same weight as the Sermon on the Mount. Because in the Old Testament, that was how it was dealt. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. He showed us a better way. Any scripture that claims to be a revelation of God must bow before the feet of the living God that came in the flesh named Jesus. Bible, as an all or nothing, take no quarter, I have to find the one true interpretation text. They were not known to look at someone with a different interpretation and call them a heretic. They recognized the playful, beautiful, living nature of the text. This is not a new way to read the Bible, but actually a very historical way of reading the Bible that has been around for centuries. What I'm suggesting is that we need to leave the modernist, western, Fear-based way of looking at the Bible. The way we look at the Bible in America has only been around for around 300 years. This is not the way the disciples, the apostles, or even the people in the day of Jesus read the Bible. The story of the Bible is this. We live in a good world created by a good God, but it's a world gone wrong. How does God save the world? That's the story of the Bible. How does God save the world? Not how does God judge the world. How does God save the world? The Bible has never been a, can you join God in heaven when you die? anybody has Christianity I'd like to give this picture read this um, Irenaeus used this example that Christianity is a tree growing up out of the soil of Scripture and while you can't separate the tree from the soil neither are they the same entity and so we have to understand understand that, yes, there I'm not asking for a low view of Scripture. I'm not saying that we don't acknowledge what's in the Bible. I'm not saying that we don't read it. I read the Bible daily, 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 daily. I pray the Bible. I quote the Bible. I believe what the Bible says. But what I'm telling you is there must be a better way than a weaponized answer book. Because let me just use as an example for those of you women in the room, For those of you women in the room, what proverb are you supposed to be? Right? Everybody, every good godly woman or woman knows the Proverbs woman. She's a godly woman. Her children will rise up and call her blessed. And she's getting up early in the morning and she's spinning flax. I don't even know what flax is or why you spin it. And we compare our women to this one-off passage in a culture that doesn't even apply to today. And I'm sorry to tell you, but rather than getting up at dawn to spin flax, because that makes you a godly woman, what if you're a jazz singer and you don't get home until dawn? truth of it is that really does do a good job if I'm a man and I like my flax spun early before dawn because you have to do this before the kids get up so you can take care of them next because I've got to scratch and spit over here in the corner and do man stuff so what we've done is we take that and then it upon people and we say, if you're a godly woman, this is what you're to look like. And I'm not saying that there's not good stuff that comes out of that. But if you think that that passage is the answer book to what you're supposed to be as a woman, we've way missed the point because we have to understand that the Bible by and large, with the exception of Jesus, was written by a bunch of misogynistic men that valued women as property and wanted their flax spun and their children raised tell you. So before we have another women's conference and use one passage to justify who they're supposed to be, maybe we should just tell people they're supposed to be like Jesus. Because Jesus is what God had to say. Because of the way we've approached Scripture as an answer book for the quiz of life, it left us wanting when it comes to things like human rights, slavery, slavery, From it, we pull things like tattoos and prohibition, and we ignore within the same passages things like cutting your hair and not eating shrimp. It's in there. The same passage in the Old Testament that talks about some of the things that we put on people about marking your body says don't eat shrimp, which works out well if you have some type of seafood allergy. But for the rest of us, I like my scrimps. A couple books that I'd like to mention, if you're interested in studying further what we talked about tonight. Number one is a book called The Bible Made Impossible. It is one of the best books I've ever read by a guy named Christopher Wallace. Another book called The Patient... of the early church. It breaks down the early centuries of the church and how they viewed the scripture and what caused them to put their, what structures were in place, why did they do what they did, and how were things done. But we have to understand, in order for us to go forward, if I'm being really honest, if you have noticed a change in the way that we've been teaching here over the last few years, this, was the catalyst. Well, his presence is always the catalyst. That's the catalyst of everything. But is spe- in specific to the, the approach to Scripture, it is we have to view it differently than we viewed it before. Because there's cultural things, there are time period things that we must absolutely take into consideration. And I'd like to say it again. When you pick up your Bible to read, stand here and say put on the glasses of the father and that's true too but the part of the reason jesus had to show up is because for thousands of years they've been trying to figure out who god was and got it wrong because let me be entirely clear jesus did not have to come as a man and spend 33 years on this earth to die for your sins could have done that human existence was atonement from sin exclusively we're missing the point that could have been done in an instant Jesus came to show us I am the way the truth and the life I am the door I'm showing you who he really is so before we get out our Bible and start flipping through the passages to show somebody how wrong they are Jesus walk us through that. So, all right, we're going to stop the recording, and we're going to take a couple minutes. Um... Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at HarvestHouse Live.